Anyone with primary immunodeficiency will tell you that every time they go to a new doctor, there's a very real possibility that the clinic simply doesn't have the knowledge and resources required to provide proper care for them. Darcy Gott is a law student at Stetson University College of Law with a vested interest in disability law. She's an athlete, a hydroponic gardener, a longtime volunteer of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, and a lover of travel and new experiences, even when they aren't so great. Darcy's diagnosis of specific antibody deficiency has presented no shortage of threats when seeking out those experiences she has always craved. Fortunately for Darcy, her mother, a retired nurse, set an early example of self-advocacy that she has made a point to emulate. Yeah, so I've actually had two different PIs. So I had a uh, primary IgA deficiency when I was uh, a toddler. I was diagnosed about the age of two. And then I guess I, if you will, just grew out of IgA deficiency when I was about five. Uh, so I don't remember much from that diagnosis, but my mom did tell me that I was just never fully well. I just kept getting sick. I had, she said I had hand, foot, and mouth about five separate times. I had rotavirus. I was admitted into the hospital with RSV when I was a, when I was a baby. Um, she said that one night it was so bad that overnight I actually lost 10% of my body weight. And that's when she sort of said, okay, something clearly isn't right. And we actually had to change pediatricians because when she went to my first pediatrician to tell him this, he just kind of blew it off and said, well, babies get sick. It's just kind of how it, how it works. She said, absolutely not. We're, we're switching pediatricians. You are no longer going to be helping us because clearly something is wrong. And if you can't see it, there's a problem. Um, and then our second pediatrician was the one who sent me to the immunologist, uh, who is still my immunologist today. Um, and he diagnosed me with IgA deficiency. The second PI that I've had, which is the one that I currently am being treated for, is specific antibody deficiency. Um, and when I was about 16 years old, uh, so this was in 2017, uh, I started with having bronchitis and sinus infection and laryngitis all at the same time. And so we started the standard antibiotics and it just never fully went away. It would get better towards the tail end of the antibiotics, but after only a couple of days of not being on them, I would get sick again. And it was this kind of vicious cycle of trying out different antibiotics, making them longer, making them shorter um, until about eight months into that, my mom said, okay, this clearly, something's not right. We need to take you back to the immunologist. And so we went back and that's when I got diagnosed with a uh, specific antibody deficiency. I think watching her be as like confident and as much of an advocate as she was for me really helped me form my skills that I have now. When she moved 1500 miles to attend college, she had more opportunities to implement her mother's lessons. She describes a university health system that had no idea how to care for her unique condition, which led to misunderstandings and scary nights. One Friday night in 2019, a severe sinus infection left Darcy in such poor health that she had to call an ambulance. When paramedics arrived, however, they were more inclined to treat her based on their assumptions of why a college student might need an ambulance on the weekend. I remember my freshman year of college, I had a really bad health scare because I had a really bad sinus infection and it turned into some neurological problems. 
And I went to my health center at my college and they kind of said, well, we think that your sinus infection spread to your brain. So we'll order you CAT scan, but you can just, you can go back to your dorm. We hope you feel better. And I called my mom and I told her this and she said, absolutely not. Send yourself to the hospital. And she flew up to Maine where I was going to college the next day and gave the health center a piece of her mind. It turned into me vomiting and like not really being able to catch my breath. And so I called um, the ambulance. Um, they came and I, they just immediately assumed because it was a weekend, it was late at night. I was wearing a college sweatshirt and I was coming from the campus. They just immediately assumed that I had alcohol poisoning. And I think they asked me at least six to eight different times in the four or five hours that I was there, uh, how much I had had to drink that night. And they were just very annoyed because they get a lot of college students, people my age who do have alcohol poisoning. So they just had the mindset of, well, here's another one. And they just kind of were brushing me off. Um, and they were not inter interpreting the medical history that I was trying to help tell them in the correct way. So for instance, I was tested for pneumonia just the day before it came back negative. I told them that, but the paramedics told the hospital that I did have pneumonia or the fact that I told them I had a PI and they told the ER that I had lupus. So there was just like a huge disconnect and they were getting mad because I couldn't move my arms because I had IVs in both arms and blood pressure cuffs and I couldn't cover my face when I was coughing and they just kept yelling at me, you need to cover your face. So it was just, it was just a terrible experience at that ER um, after that situation. And it was in one part because they had never seen somebody who had a PI and another big part is because they just had these terrible assumptions already in place because of previous history. Because this hospital was less than a mile from the college campus. So they do get a lot of students from that college who, who had alcohol problems. In the winter of 2022, after returning to campus from the holiday, Darcy tested positive for COVID-19. She found herself yet again facing complicated systems that seemed to work directly against her needs. In January of 2022, uh, right when I came back on campus, I tested positive for COVID. Uh, and so at that time, because there were such high numbers of other students testing positive, and because almost everyone, I would say at least 96% of the student body stayed on campus, what the school did was they rented out an entire hotel down the street and anybody who tested positive would just quarantine there. And so that's what they did for me. They called me when I tested positive, and this was about 12 or 1 o'clock um, on that day. And they said, okay, we're currently trying to get a room for you down at the hotel. Please do not leave your dorm at, at all costs um, because we do not want you to spread COVID to everybody else. We don't want anybody else to get COVID. Um, I ended up without any food, staying in my dorm for eight hours, um, and I got picked up by shuttle um, and taken to this hotel, and I was told that I was supposed to bring roughly a week's worth of clothes and that standard hotel amenities would be there. Um, unfortunately, when I showed up to the hotel room, 
it was not cleaned and there were no towels. And I remember having to get really mad at the school and tell them like what you are doing here by not providing us with the resources that we need, it's making us sicker. And all at the same time that I was working this out with the school, I was also trying to figure out how to get the monoclonal antibody treatment. And that in itself was a really big hassle for a lot of reasons. It took me roughly four days from the time that I started the process of getting approved for the monoclonal antibody treatment to the time that I actually got it. It took me four days. Um, and there was a huge problem with my immunologist sending all my information to the um, monoclonal treatment centers um, and them never responding. And then him calling me to say that I needed to find another way to get him these documents so that he could send it to the hospital. Um, and I remember him telling me that the form that he had to fill out was a check all that apply point system. So they basically had a list of all of these chronic illnesses that people had that they would be considered high risk um, of being seriously ill or being killed by COVID. And basically for each check you put next to each illness, you get more points. And so the hospital or whoever was running the um, system had a threshold of points. So once you hit, went over that threshold, you were uh, approved or you were eligible for getting the treatment. And so maybe a day, a day and a half after my immunologist originally submitted these documents, they called me, the hospital called me and said, you're not high risk enough, so we're not giving you the monoclonal treatment. And then they called me back and they said, we wouldn't give it to you anyways because your immunologist is not a registered immunologist in Maine. You have to have somebody from Maine send in these um, request letters to us. And so then it turned into a process of having my immunologist and me work with my health center to have that physician send in these documents. And so finally, after that whole four-day process, I did get the monoclonal treatment, but it was a very stressful time with dealing with COVID while trying to get approved for this medication while also dealing with the school to make sure that I had all the resources that I needed to make sure that I was getting better. As Darcy tells the story of her youth, she describes difficulty fitting in socially. Attention-seeking accusations made it difficult for her to be open and honest about the condition that controlled so much of her life. At times, fear of this led to what she admits were questionable decisions. My school, where they were located, um, there wasn't much to do within the city or the outer bounds of it. And so a lot of the social side of the college was very based on campus, which meant there were a lot of parties and they were really big parties with a lot of alcohol and stuff. And the group that I was with, um, they were very oriented on going to these parties. They were, they were very much social butter butterflies. And so they would go out every single weekend. And there was one night I was doing subcutaneous IG at the time. So I was doing it myself. And I told them, you know, I really can't go anywhere because I'm currently doing this, like I'm infusing, it could be bad. And they just kept pressuring me and making me feel bad for not um, going with them. And so I ended up going to these crazy parties while infusing. And what ended up, yeah, and what ended up happening was my infusion started like leaking and I, in 
the needles started coming out as I was infusing. And it was a huge scare for me because I never experienced that before where like my needles were actively coming out of my body while I was infusing. And I called my nurse in a panic. Um, that, that I do consider like risking, risking my mental and physical well-being to try and fit in like the most blatant example that I could think of. It's been a bumpy road in terms of social. Um, from IDF's perspective, I they're my closest friends, the group that I have at IDF. And I do think that a lot of it is because we have this shared um, experience of having a PI. Um, especially when I was in college, it it could have it was tough at certain times, uh, especially during that first year of college with social stuff, because I felt a lot of pressure to fit in. And sometimes, um, in my opinion, that meant sacrificing my own well-being to kind of try and impress the people who I was around or live up to the expectations that I thought they had. Um, so it was very tough that first year. But after I realized what negative impact that had on both my physical and mental well-being, I took a step back and realized that having to change myself or hide certain aspects of having a PI from them just to be friends with them, it's really not worth it. Um, and so after that, I was able to find some really good friends and, you know, I'm in a really state, I'm in a serious relationship right now. It's going to be four years and a couple of weeks and, you know, it hasn't put a strain on us there, which is good. It's clear that Darcy's many experiences have given her keen insight into how people with PI are treated across different settings. They've led her to give one important piece of advice to anyone on a similar health journey as her. Don't take no for an answer. My biggest advice is if you're in the process of getting a diagnosis, do, do not stop until you get a diagnosis or until you get the answers that you need. You, you are the only one who knows if something is wrong with your body. Nobody else can tell you that. If you know that something is wrong, if you know that you should not be getting sick every single month, you shouldn't be getting pneumonia so many times a year, do not stop because one doctor said that it's nothing. You are the one who knows if something is wrong. You can keep going until you get answers. That is my biggest advice and, and keep advocating for yourself. That's where all of this comes from. Just keep advocating no matter what people tell you. My advice for people who are newly diagnosed is it is not as isolating as it may feel. Because of how rare a PI is, it may feel at first that you are the only one around who has a PI. But we have IDF. IDF will help you realize that you're not as alone, you're not as isolated as you think you are. So just keep that in mind. There's, there's a community out there for you that will do nothing but help you and support you. Thank you for listening to the Immune Deficiency Foundation podcast. Your support of the Immune Deficiency Foundation helps ensure that people like Darcy get the peer support and advocacy they deserve. For more information on how to donate or volunteer, visit primaryimmune.org.